Oh, there you are. Welcome to today's episode of the Finding Fire podcast. In today's episode, you and I discuss the idea of fire in the UK. During this conversation, we're casual towards the idea of living on government benefits. I understand that many who are in that situation are living in extreme poverty and face crushing circumstances beyond anything I've ever had to consider. We also talk about the NHS, and I realise that like benefits, the support that the NHS is able to provide has been reduced for many people under recent governments. I know those facts cause fear in some and much more concrete implications for others. I'm aware of the privilege I demonstrate simply by being willing to consider these ideas so nonchalantly, and I'm quite confident that Ian would agree. Oh, absolutely. I hope you'll consider priming the homing pigeons to get in touch with us with your ideas on whether financial independence is relevant in countries outside of America. Hello, Stuart. Last time we spoke, you told me that fire is dead and there's no point in it in the UK and we should all just live off of the state instead. Was that that's the top level summary of, of what you said? I mean, that's basically it, right? Yeah, super. End of discussion. Fantastic. So what I've been thinking is kind of linked into what people have been discussing, the six or the seven stages of financial freedom or financial independence, depending on who you read, talk to. Have you come across this? I have. You would need to remind me what the stages are, but I've got the general idea. Could you go through it again for me, though? Yeah. So I think the origin of this is J.D. Roth okay. of Get Rich Slowly. Yep. Um, and the place I've heard most about it is Paula Pant yep. of Afford Anything. And I suspect that's where you've come across it as well. Yes, but it's not the only place I am sure that I've heard very similar ideas elsewhere. It's a very popular and useful framework. I am quite certain that on the Choose Five podcast they have discussed this separate to J.D. Roth. But yeah, that, I, I would agree. I think that's the that, that's certainly the first person I remember hearing it from. So I think it's Paula who added a seventh stage. Okay. I might be wrong. Phone in, send us an email, let me know if I've made a mistake. I'm sure there's other more important mistakes I've made. Homing pigeon is the best way to get in contact with Ian. Well, it's, the, the, the pigeon will peck me until I answer at the very <laughs> least. So your seven stages of financial independence, according to Paula Pant. Stage zero, total financial dependence. Um, other people are supplying for your needs. Uh, stage one, financial solvency and you're supporting yourself you've got enough money coming in to cover your outgoings or something along those lines so that that between between stage zero and stage one there has to be like a minimum of 20 plus years right i think that's going to be the average these days right yeah okay um stage two is financial stability the difference here being you've got some savings so that if something comes wrong along you don't just fall flat on your face okay uh, stage three, debt freedom, which is kind of, feels to me like an intermediate stage, similar to financial stability, but with the technicality of you managed to get rid of all the debt that you consider to be a burden. So I'm assuming this is taking the Dave Ramsey approach of saving up a, a, an emergency fund prior to clearing debt. Is that fair? Because otherwise, how? Because otherwise, because you could be debt free but not um, secure. Yes. Okay. So maybe this is assuming that order of things. Okay. And that's probably why when I hit stage three debt freedom, I kind of went, uh, is this really another stage? It seems so tied into financial stability. Sure. That I would say stage two slash three. Okay. Whatever. Uh, stage four, 
financial security where you have enough income from your investments potentially maybe you've got enough growth that you can draw down from regularly um, that covers your basic needs and day-to-day life like really really bare bones stuff and um, just maybe your living cost and some food and then there's the classic stage stage five financial independence which we will talk about at length of you've got enough income from investments to cover all the things you want to do. No, that's maybe not right. Yes, okay, yeah, all the things you currently do. Because then there's these stages above of like stage six, financial freedom, where you can then really splash out on anything your heart could desire. And you said there's a stage seven? Stage seven is abundance. Right. Where not only are you meeting all your reasonable dreams, but you're thinking about how to help others achieve their dreams and spreading the love etc okay so from from that you've you said you've already achieved stage 3 the debt freedom is that correct i would say yes uh-huh um i still have a mortgage on the house we live in mm-hmm. and i have some credit card debt but only because i balance that with cash savings sure so it depends how you look at debt but i'm happy to say i'm at stage two stage three okay there's a possibility i'm at stage four financial security it depends how bare bones you cover right you call your basic necessities now it seems to me like there is a huge void between stage three and stage four yeah there's some stuff you could fill in there like how stable is your financial stability like what kind of knocks can you take yeah I I forget it's, it's been a while since I read the book Set for Life by Scott Trench, but he talk, he doesn't he doesn't use the staging, but it's, there's something similar, kind of like a gradient going up. But between what would be stage three and stage four, he's got your first twenty five thousand um, to invest. Okay. Which I think is a nice, and then I think the next stage is the first hundred thousand, and then he would be on to stage four. Yeah, I can see the benefits of that, but I don't. I don't think I like the idea of having specific numbers. The effect on the person is so dependent on their needs and desires. Of course. Now, I, what I do like about that is that if you want to invest in something like a rental property, you are probably going to need somewhere in the region of 20-ish thousand, right? By the time you've got deposit and, and all those kind of things. Yeah. I like that as a benchmark to be this is the point where I can start seriously investing. Okay, yeah, I see what you're saying. So, like, what's the scale of opportunities you can seize? Yes, exactly, exactly. I think the areas to focus on are the stage zero to stage four. Right. Everything before financial independence. Is it fair to say most people, when they hit 65, naturally become stage five? Not everyone, of course, but a lot of people, whether it's through state pension or their own savings or investments or whatever so i'm I'm guessing the goal is to become stage five before the age of 65 financial independence is just about reaching stage five financial independence retiring early is obviously trying to be ahead of the curve and achieving that yeah i don't think it's fair to say that most people naturally reach financial independence okay having enough income from investments savings pensions to cover their average lifestyle leading up to retirement okay what i think is probably true is that a lot of people will naturally end up at something like stage four of being able to cover you know their basic needs and some 
stuff. Sure. So they then modify their lifestyle when they hit retirement. Okay, right. So the the average person is going to get somewhere around about four, stage four or stage five by retirement age. And you're suggesting that to get to stage four or five before retirement age is somehow different in the UK. Yes, I think so. Okay. I think there's an argument to be made that in a way that's not true in America, the place where a lot of the people discussing these things live, in the UK, there's an argument to be made that everyone's already at stage four. (laughs) Okay, right. If you're happy to factor in the support available in an emergency situation from the government, your society, the people around you that have agreed to band together in times of need. If you're happy to factor that in to what's available to you, rather than just counting investment income, then in many situations, you're at something approaching the stage four of you've got enough to cover your basic bare bones living costs. I would agree with you to an extent because you would you would hope that certainly things like healthcare you're always going to be able to get the minimum to keep you going regardless of your financial financial situation or that's the hope in the UK because we've got the absolutely wonderful NHS yeah and healthcare is the place where this argument shines yes I will stand by my argument that everyone's at stage four when it comes, when it comes to, healthcare. to healthcare yeah okay I'm quite happy to be argued down off my high horse when it comes to every other basic need, like food and heating and housing. Now, food, heating and housing, I think there is, is hopefully, even in these times of austerity, hopefully still enough support to keep most people alive in terms of food, shelter, heating. But I think that's a very long way off of keeping people in their basic standards of living. Yes, uh alive is not the standard I'd like to use. (laughs) I would not say that the support offered by the government and society is anything like financial independence. If I was to lose my job and fall ill and and lose my house, it's not like I'm suddenly going to be able to just have that same quality of life back. But I think I could cover my basic needs. Okay. So what what is the implications of that then? Well, there's two halves to this. I'm trying to make the argument that you can reach a kind of stage four just by being part of this society, the United Kingdom, where you pay your tax and if something bad happens, society's there for you. I'm going to very, very quickly interject for um, anyone who's listening out with the, the UK. For all that UK tax is not low, it is actually similar to total level of tax that most people in the the USA would pay, but you get back significant benefit. Anyway. Yeah, I think that's that's reflects my understanding as well. I just want to make that clear because whenever people start talking about, oh, we've got this security system, but it's paid for by tax, I worry it starts pe- putting people off the idea that actually having social support is a very good thing. When you compare it to a lot of countries, the tax levels are similar-ish in total, but we get back a heck of a lot more. Anyway, keep going. So you're saying if for people who are, are willing to agree to the contract that we're going to live in a country where we pay tax. Yeah, that you've got this support network already there. Then if stages one, two and three and four are already covered, 
then what's financial independence even for? Is it just for stage five? And then if we look at stage five, financial independence itself, mm -hmm. having enough income from your investments that you can cover your current lifestyle, the, you know, the pie in the sky for everyone in the fire community. No one actually wants that when it comes to it. <laughs> Can you give me any examples of someone who's reached financial independence and has stopped working entirely? <laughs> That's interesting. There's a few bloggers and podcasters who have reached FI and then dropped off the scene. And I assume those people are doing that. Okay, that's fair, yeah. The vast majority of people I know about are, are bloggers or podcasters, and the vast majority of them are still blogging and podcasting. Yes. And I don't, I don't know anyone in real life who has done that. I can think of a few people in real life who probably are in a financial independence-like situation, and they still spend more hours of the day working in projects than I ever have. Right. They're just extremely prolific, productive people. And maybe they class less of what they do now as work, but it's productive. And it, it brings them either direct benefit or something very similar to money, whether that's just food or they're working on their own building. I don't think it'd be fair to say they stop working. So the pursuit of FI is more interesting and more attractive than achieving FI. And the side benefits like security aren't so relevant in a country like the UK. Is that is that the kind of summary of your, your argument? That's the argument, yeah. And I think we could discuss how true that is, um, what makes that true, if it is true in any sense, and whether or not the pursuit of financial independence has any application in the UK. Now, one big thing, one real massive advantage to me of going for financial independence is the flexibility. I mean, you spoke last time about trying to build up a cushion to allow you to take advantage of potential opportunity. Yes. If we are going off of the safety blanket of being supported by the state, to allow those things to be synonymous, you would have to be willing to take opportunities which may end up with you pretty much losing everything apart from your ability to eat and access healthcare. Okay, yeah. That is where the safe you would you would fall potentially fall pretty far. So if you went for if you tried to start up a business without first building that cash cushion that someone seeking fine might build up, then yes you probably wouldn't ever be left starving and homeless but you still stand to potentially lose a lot so do you think then there's something to be said for a stage 4.5 <laughs> where you have enough of a cushion that you're covering a little bit more than what would be met by the social safety net yeah now the difficulty here is a lot of these social safety net things don't come into effect until you've burnt through your savings or whatever. Yes, so there's a one or the other situation yeah. here for many of them where for all the time you're building up a buffer that's not as good as the social safety net, you're kind of putting in double effort. And then once you get to something that's better than it, then you get the usefulness. Yes, I don't know because I don't live in America, so I don't know how I would feel. Taking um, opportunities that carry risk doesn't feel that scary when you know that so I'm always going to be able to get my insulin no matter yeah. what happens I can always get the medicine that keeps me alive for example that if I look if I get fired I'm not going to lose my health care and then all of a sudden a week later I'm dead I mean that that's just not going to happen so I feel like 
if I want to take risks, I can do that with building up less of a buffer than I think I would have to living in America. Absolutely. I think the the healthcare aspect of it when it comes to being able to leave your job and try out something you think is going to be better for you or better for the world is just wonderful. And your insulin example is probably the best one. So is it is it that then going for fire is then just less risky in the UK? What do you mean by that? As in if starting up my own business or investing in property or whatever goes wrong i'm less likely to suffer severe consequence because you hear a lot of uh, people in america talking about they don't want to lose their is it w2 paycheck or whatever they call it over there they don't want to lose their regular paycheck because then they can't get insurance they can't get all that those kind of things okay yeah so is the argument then that it's not that fi is less valuable but that we can pursue riskier paths to find. Well, I, I feel like I could, but I don't... I might, I might be saying the same if I was American, but I feel like I could be braver with it. Yeah, um, that feels like a different thing to me. Sure. Because the pursuit of financial independence doesn't seem like a very brave or risky thing to me. It seems like a really boring, sensible, safe option. <laughs> Does that, no, that seem fair? I, I think it depends how you're going after financial independence. But yeah, I get I get your point. It certainly seems safer than the alternative. Yes. Uh-huh. Taking the leap from being to, to being financial independence once you've built built up that other income feels like it would be less risky. Okay, I see. Yes. Uh-huh. To actually step away from your regular income. Yes. What do you think then about the impact of um holidays? Paid holiday, paid vacation, paid annual leave. Right, okay. So I, I don't know much about workers' rights elsewhere. Um, in the UK, we have got it better than some places, I believe, a lot worse than most of Europe. Yeah, I believe the standard in the UK is something like five weeks. I believe the standard in the States is about two weeks. And I'm led to believe that there is a strong culture of being encouraged not to take the full two weeks if you're committed to the job. Two weeks per year? Yeah. That is outrageous. Doesn't that seem really strange? Like, I thinking of five weeks holiday, I think that's quite tight how I'm going to fit everything in. I have no idea how I would work with two weeks holiday a year. Uh, do people take unpaid leave? I don't think so. I don't know. I'm not even sure if that two weeks is paid. What? That's, that's madness. By the time you've got... So you're going to have to give up at least one week of holiday to spending time with family that you don't like. I mean, that is a given. Yeah, so let's do the, the Christmas day. No, 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 but not not just... There There will be generally a holiday at some point where you go to visit someone or something like that, spend time with family you don't like. And then there's those days like Christmas day. And between those two, that is two weeks completely gone. Yes, that's that's my understanding of it. Like I just... Beyond the annual family obligations, what else are you going to do? What do you think then is the impact on whether or not fire is relevant? Because if I had two weeks holiday a year, I would want another option than my job pretty sharpish. Absolutely. Right. So if, if you're allowed to take unpaid leave, it maybe isn't as bad as it sounds. And actually, to be honest, no, because I, I know when I was self-employed, I earned more for the hours I worked. 
But because I didn't get paid for specifically for holidays, I then never took holidays. Yes. Uh-huh. I, I, I'm really struggling with that idea. Yes, if I was only getting two weeks holiday a year, then I would be probably leaving the country or something like that. Do you think it makes you not feel like you have to, to seek fire at all if you're getting these lavish five-week holidays that you're getting? So that's the thing. Because five weeks feels like the norm to me, I still want to build in more flexibility to my life. I would like to have 10 weeks holiday year. That'd be lovely. Yeah. From that perspective, I don't think it makes much of a difference. I still think financial independence is worth pursuing. But would I care a lot more about it if I only had two weeks holiday a year? So I think it makes a difference, but I don't think it makes all the difference. Is your baseline just adjusted by what you're used to and you still want more? I suspect there's something like that going on. Is it called hedonic adaptation? So that would be relevant to what you specifically experience. Yes, uh, this just feels normal. The other thing that could be relevant would be anchoring or baselining where the idea of what is acceptable is set by your surroundings. Yeah. And so maybe if you, I don't know, worked in... I was going to try and come up with a country that would be likely to have um, very poor holiday entitlement and realised that no matter what the next words out of my mouth was, it was probably going to be incredibly racist. So <laughs> let, let, let's not go there. But yeah, so if the UK had always had a norm of two weeks holiday from before we were born. Yes, that would be totally acceptable. And you would you would feel lucky to have got your third week. Maybe I'd be happier in that situation because the extra week's holiday is suddenly 50% better. You you might be right. So maybe maybe that's a call for then restricting holiday for everyone. <laughs> well, there's a policy we can put forward to the Conservative government. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure it would be, it would be loved and adored. In the same vein then as paid holiday time, sick pay, I gather, is an extremely different kettle of fish. I, I want to just mention that I, I very quickly googled the longest holidays and uh, the country that's come up in Google is Kuwait, who apparently get um, seven weeks as standard paid. If you've worked two years continuous with one employer, you get an additional four weeks per two years um, for performing religious rituals. And then you also get an additional 13 public holidays. That sounds very civilised. That's really nice. So it's off to Kuwait then? That's astounding. Yeah. <laughs> right, yes, sick pay. Now, sick pay is not standard across the UK. Not everyone gets the same sick leave and things like that. Because sick pay is so variable in the UK, it's perhaps more useful to talk about sick leave. Okay, sick leave. Where you're allowed time off to be sick and you come back when you're better and your job's still there. What's the expected in the UK? My impression, and I really should look into the details of this, <laughs> my impression is that it's basically impossible to fire someone for being sick. That's not quite right. It's not possible to jump to that. This is specific to the NHS. It may be more general to the UK as a whole, but specific to the NHS, that if you have been off sick with the NHS for more than 12 months, then there would be a review as to whether it seems likely that you will be returning to work within a reasonable time period. And if the answer is no, you can be dismissed on grounds of incapability to work. If prior to 12 months, it becomes 
obvious that return to work is unlikely within foreseeable future, then you, that can happen sooner. However, there's other things that have got to be considered first. They've got to consider whether they can adjust your work environment or whether they could redeploy you to a different part of the NHS where you might be able to, to work. The before 12 months thing is actually something that's probably not that often used is my impression. Yeah, I'd be very surprised. Let's say that you lose both your hands and so you can't be a dentist anymore. Essentially on day one, the NHS knows that you are incapable to ever to return to work as a dentist. Yes. However, I do not think, for all that I am not convinced that all people who work in HR are actually human, I do not think that any HR person would try and pursue capabilities on the first day of sickness. I think that's one of the things that comes down to the culture of sick leave in the UK and that the idea of saying to someone on the first day that they become unable to continue in their job that right that's it you're gone we're not paying you good luck is so horrifying here yeah that even though the rules might allow for it i don't think it would be followed through on i cannot imagine it ever happening now it probably has happened to someone not, not by the nhs anyway. no 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 a smaller employer that is legitimately struggling both your hands get chopped off is one situation where you could get dismissed before 12 months another situation where let's say you're off with some kind of sickness but you have decided that you are not going to go to any of your hospital appointments and you're not going to take any of your medication and you're not engaged in the process, that's another situation where they could dismiss you. But as long as there is some level of hope, and this is not legal advice, of course, but <laughs> from being through this process with other people, as long as there is some level of hope that you might return to work, you would be expected to be given a minimum of 12 months. In terms of pay... Um, it depends on your length of service. Most NHS workers would get six months full pay, six months half pay, and then unpaid leave until dismissal. That would be a standard yeah. thing. I've now got information for the UK in general, Okay, if that helps. Yes. In terms of time off, it's very similar in the first stages where you can get a note from your doctor to prove that you can't come to work. And that covers you in terms of like seven days to four weeks. Yeah. More than four weeks is considered long-term sick. And that's the point at which another employer could consider saying, well, you're obviously not going to be able to come back. Sure. But again, there's an obligation set out in law for them to consider adaptations to the job or redeployment within the same company. From what you... Uh, from, from the fact you've raised this as a conversation... I'm going to assume that that is not the same in, in other parts of the world. I expect that anyone in the United States, at least, listening to us discuss the idea of an employer letting someone go after four weeks of sick leave would be just aghast at how generous our situation is. Would the idea of someone being off sick on full pay for at least six months in the NHS would that seem even more outrageous? I think that is basically unfathomable. <laughs> I don't think that's a thing that happens. Right, okay. I got some comments earlier in the day from some people who actually know about this. Super. So give me a moment. You can sing to yourself if you want. 
I I can't, I'm not a very good singer. Now here's a little side story while Ian looks up his comments. When I was in primary five, during the Christmas carol concert, I was told beforehand by my teacher that I should pretend to sing, I should move my mouth as if I was singing, but I shouldn't actually sing because my singing was sufficiently bad to drown out the other 30 people, the other 30 children in my class, and that um, it was horrendous to listen to. And funnily enough, the same thing happened for the two years after that in Premier 6 and Premier 7. And when I got to high school, I decided I wasn't going to be involved in the Christmas concert or anything similar for some reason. So there we go. That is why I won't sing to you. Um, Has that been enough time for Ian to get together what he needs? Have you heard the phrase, a face only a mother could love? Yes. At some point in my youth, my mum said to me, Ian, you can't sing and you should never sing. Please just do what Stuart's been told to do. Just pretend you're singing. Don't actually make any noises. It'll be better for everyone. (laughs) How does that come into a face that only a mother could love? My voice (laughs) could previously have been described as a voice only a mother could love. (laughs) But not even your mother. (laughs) It turns out it wasn't even that. Oh, Ian. Oh, Ian. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I'm going to get... Oh, I had. It's not going to be anything specific in terms of like, you know, it's not a lawyer in the States. It's just people in America telling their woes. I think the laws about employment in general are very weak in terms of employee rights in America compared to the UK. And that it's very easy to let someone go without necessarily having to give much reason. You know, like someone's off sick for remotely long term you could say look sorry we had to hire someone else like i feel sorry for you but that's how it is right and i'm not saying that's objectively a bad thing i do have my opinions about it but what i'm interested in is the effect that has on someone's desire to build up their own independence from a financial standpoint i feel like this is another one of those situations where Helping the most vulnerable, the most deserving, the most needy is also helping those who want to, to scam the system. And I think it's the same in terms of, of anything that people talk about, they get upset about in terms of, of the government being too lenient or whatever, of the more the more the people who need the help get the help they need, the easier it becomes to game the system and there will always be some people who game the system my inherent belief in humanity says that those people who are gaming the system are going to be a small number compared to those who genuinely need the help yeah that's my belief as well and i think the arguments that happen about anything like sick leave or disability benefits these kind of systems that can be taken advantage of and the arguments end up a little bit too polarized and that people talk exclusively about the benefits and ignore the side effects of people abusing the system or perhaps talk exclusively about the abuse and ignore the benefits and i think there's a nuanced discussion to have there of there are benefits there are disadvantages and in my opinion for example i think the benefits hugely outweigh the disadvantages because of what you said i think the people abusing the system are going to be few and far between. I hope so. I also don't think that 
the fear of the system being abused should ever put us as a as a as a culture off helping people who genuinely are desperate and need help like to me that might just be one of the prices we've got to pay for a decent civilized society where people don't starve to death yeah absolutely i can give you some specific details on sick pay in the united states okay hit me with it i'm gonna try and summarize wikipedia okay so there's no requirement to provide access to paid sick days for short-term illnesses but there is some guarantee for unpaid leave for serious illnesses okay for bigger employers it's one of those things like the holiday pay where the fact that it's such a norm for us it becomes so shocking when it's absent yeah and holiday is a nice thing but sick pay suddenly becomes it hits those moral cords in you where you think no this is wrong that you're not allowing people to take time off when they're sick absolutely now according to the the website glassdoor which is an employment website um the uk has almost the least generous sick leave in the whole of the eu oh wow and it gives an example here of netherlands where people can get up to two years partially paid sick pay okay that's um quite a range then yes so do you think then the level of sick pay in a society will affect the desire to pursue financial independence personally the answer is going to be no because the likelihood of me being off long-term sick is probably higher for myself than it might be for other people. I'm not worried about short-term sick because I've got sick pay. Now, maybe I would be more inclined if I didn't get sick pay to build up a good buffer, but the long-term sick thing, I'm screwed even in a generous country like the UK. Even in the Netherlands, I would still be in trouble if I went off sick long term. So it still becomes important to have that long term security that could come with financial independence. Yeah, I think that's fair. What's your thoughts? One of the perks of financial independence is that things like sick pay don't really factor in anymore. Yes. You can forget about it. Yeah. If you are happy to work your whole life, then having sick pay means that that's a more predictable thing to do. Yes. You know what I mean? To just continue in employment, yes. not worry yeah, about yeah. building up your own investments. So it makes that side of it more attractive. But I don't, I, yeah, I think it probably doesn't make a huge difference either way. Mm. What then about um, maternity, paternity leave? Jeez, that does, that, that amazes me that there's not universal right to a parental leave of some kind in certain parts of the world like the USA. I know again some it varies state by state and some states have got it very well and some companies provide good compensation but it seems to be like most don't and that is just outrageous. Is that not just madness? If you you want the next generation to grow up healthy, smart and strong and in a stable enough position to continue society forward but we're going to completely undervalue a parent's role and make it impossible for most, especially women, to do both have a job and be a parent. Like, is that, like where does that, that... That just seems madness to me. 
Yeah, and I think, again, it's important to separate out maternity leave and, well, let's just say parental leave, but maternity leave feels like the really, really like basic one. Yeah. Um, but parental leave and parental pay, I think, are quite different things. Yes. I'm quite happy for people to make the argument that we're not going to pay people to be parents in a developed country where they've got access to contraception and can make choices. Fair enough. It's a harsh argument to make, but sure, go ahead and make it. But the idea of having even just a small amount of time off to have your child recover and go back to your job just as competent as you were before seems so intuitively right and normal to me that it astonishes me that some places don't have the same maternity leave provisions we do. Isn't it just madness? So my understanding of the American system, and, and again, I'll f- please forgive me anyone if I get this wrong, is that you can get up, if you work for a large company, you can get up to it's something like 10 weeks or 12 weeks unpaid. When the mother of my children was, well, <laughs> when my first child was born, 12 weeks later was still before her due date and we were still in hospital and we had not had a day at home with the baby yet and we were still probably five weeks away from leaving the hospital. And with the second baby, even though everything went very, very well, actually it couldn't have gone better in terms of labour and birth and all that. 12 weeks later, you're not sleeping, you're not eating properly, you don't have the ability to safely drive to work never mind get there and do a good day's work that's insane yeah that is absolutely insane Ian. so it seems like for companies of more than 50 employees there is a requirement for 12 weeks unpaid leave to be available to mothers of newborn or newly adopted children yikes um, but that doesn't cover the majority of workers. No, and also that's 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 unpaid leave. Yeah, absolutely. That's a huge, huge ask. But then who's going to pay for that? I believe in the UK, the businesses will get support to help pay the maternity pay. It's not coming straight out of their pocket. So there is a, a, a statutory amount, as they recall it, which is similar to the level of benefits that will get paid for a person being off on parental leave. And a lot of employers, and I mean a lot of employers, choose to top that up. Not everyone does. There's there's going to be a lot of people who don't work for organisations that can afford to do that or are willing to do that. But again, if you work for a great organisation like the NHS, they top that up significantly. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. The NHS is a completely different kettle of fish altogether. The parental leave provisions in the NHS are extremely generous and it's so generous that I think well why don't they just pay people more because now we're playing favorites with families over people who want to be single right but that's a, that, you know that's a completely tangential comment just the NHS is fantastic in terms of parental leave do you want me to respond to your comment or Oh, go on then. Okay. So first of all, people in general, I suspect, are le- are not as good at saving up in advance as they maybe should be. So yeah, p- 
paying people slightly less, but then giving them support after having a child. Um, from a behaviour point of view, from a like a human behaviour economics point of view, makes more sense in my mind. The other aspect of it is that the people who do not have children themselves still need other people to have children because when they come to retire, they're going to want clever, healthy, well-educated people looking after them, for example. I think you've convinced me already. You want the next generation to be at least as well off as your generation, if not better. And and I believe part of that is allowing families to have choice in how they look after the children. Yeah. I'm very biased because I've got two children, but I think it's a fair price. If you choose not to have children and you're saying you then get paid less as a result overall, it's essentially a tax that you're paying towards in future the next generation not being as delinquent as they might be and making sure that when you're older you've got someone who is doesn't beat you up as you walk down the street and someone who can care for you in a nursing home and all these kind of things. Yeah, I think that's fair. You make a good point. So it's perhaps um, helpful to come back to the main point and outline for a lot of people who don't necessarily know much about parental leave in the UK. Yes, please enlighten um, us. That... Am I right in saying pretty much every employed mother has the statutory right to a year's maternity leave? I believe so. Of which a proportion will be paid at initially like 90% of their pay and then very quickly dropping to a sort of basic allowance. Yeah. And then the mother can choose to end that early and transfer into the shared parental leave scheme where that remaining untaken leave can then be transferred to their partner who can take over maternity leave, Yes, essentially. And in addition to that, the partner will get, regardless of what the mother does with maternity leave, the partner will get two weeks of parental leave for the birth of the child. Yes. And whether or not that's paid or not depends on your employer. Yes, I believe so, yes. So I think it gives a rough overview. I'm not entirely sure of some of the details and there's extra perks common with a lot of employers. As you've said, many employers will make up the difference in a lot of situations. And there's a strong culture of like good maternity pay being part of employment packages. Yep. And certainly people pick their jobs according to that. Um, I know of at least one person who is currently single but she wants children, so she's staying in her job in the NHS <laughs> in anticipation of meeting the partner who she'll have children with. Is that right? Interesting. Yeah. He, here's an interesting comparison between the UK and some other places. You will get paid leave not for, again, it's not your necessarily your full pay. It's a, it's a, it's a basic allowance in it. It's not necessarily for a full year, um, but I'll... A lot of people then will take their holiday leave at the end of that to extend the amount of time they get off with with pay. Yes. So if you're if you're somewhere like America that only has twelve weeks leave and then two weeks holiday, that's still atrocious. Yeah, there's a double effect there, isn't there? Yeah. Maternity leave, as we've discussed it, parental leave in general. How do you think that factors into people's desire? for something like financial independence. I think it's a gigantic one 
the number of people I hear talking enthusiastically about financial independence as a way to spend more time with their family absolutely the number of times i've heard on podcasts about people who maybe they've not got to financial independence yet but as a family they've they've halved their expenses in anticipation of the mother then being able to take more than 12 weeks off so so they are essentially chasing fire so that they can get a reasonable amount of time off. Whereas you're just not going to get that here, to the, or certainly not to the same extent, I wouldn't imagine. I think there's an accumulated effect there of the fact that you can get time off for the things that typically people want time off for, having children and, you know, even the holiday pay. It makes being completely independent less necessary. Yeah. And that if you just choose to work in a typical job right up until a normal retirement age, you're still going to have the flexibility in the life to pursue the things that, that you value. Yes. In conclusion, fire's dead. Um, no point in pursuing it in the UK. And do not live in the US because that seems insane where you'll pay a similar amount of tax and get get a fraction of the benefits. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Excellent. That seems like it summarised everything. So <laughs> thank you to everyone for joining us in our final episode of <laughs> yeah, Finding Fire. Absolutely. Yeah, what's the point? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to stop saving for anything and just dig my heels in at my current job. Absolutely. And just, just stay there for the next 40 years and everything will work out absolutely fine. But it won't be so bad because you'll get pretty good holidays. What would you say is the thing that still has you enthusiastic about financial independence? I want to be able to to live off of a much smaller amount of my income than I currently do with a view to then being able to take off much more holiday to spend time with the kids. That's what gets me excited. I think I've got a leg up, I've got a helping hand in that, first of all, that's possible when it might not be in some other countries or some other employers and second of all i'm halfway to the the holiday that i want the holiday entitlement that i want because i already get pretty good holidays what do you mean can you clarify most jobs within the nhs what you can do is you can take a pay cut and in return you'll get additional holidays yeah so you can have um regularly planned unpaid leave would be another way of well this that's that's another way to look at it yes absolutely to be able to do that i need to be able to live off of less of my income which means i need to start heading in the direction of fire what about you what what still excites you basically the same thing what we've got if you just go the standard path of get your head down work hard spend what you've got and then end up at whatever retirement your job lined you up with. And in the NHS, that's going to be a reasonable pension. It's going to be all right. Yeah. And you'll maybe modify your lifestyle at retirement. That sounds good to me. That sounds absolutely fine. I'll quite happily work up to 68, 70. But that still leaves the prospect of having more flexibility. Sure. Of having more time with your family, of going on a big five-month adventure with my son and as much as we've got all the support that means you could do smaller versions of that without any effort at all with a bit of effort and a bit of using these other things you're alluding to like shifting your working patterns increasing the amount of leave you take per year there's so much scope for 
having the benefits of fire early without necessarily having to just immediately walk away from your job yeah you can build it in increments absolutely so it'll be interesting to see how we build on that as we go along absolutely more we use the fire we built up the slower we'll be building it but maybe the more satisfaction we get in the short term yes it'll be an interesting journey uh yes i look forward to it absolutely hmm. i i feel very blessed just now do you but, well likewise i <laughs> We're in remarkably fortunate positions for a variety of reasons. Um, and I hope we haven't criticised specifically America too much. Some of my statements today will be based in ignorance. And the only reason for targeting the States, of course, has just been that that is where a lot of the media is currently coming from. Yes. Where a lot of the assumptions already are. Yes. Is there anything else you want to add about that? I would echo your sentiments and, and, and just say that I, I have no shame in being wrong because it happens to me too often for me to be able to afford to be embarrassed that has been a longer conversation than i was expecting so i'm going to i'm going to head and i'll leave you to care for for hazel and fetus joe and and i i was going to start telling you about our sick hen but i think once again it's definitely past our bedtime no question so thank you again for the absolutely, lovely discussion absolutely bye hazel <laughs> hazel's gone to bed oh you're far too late oh okay you can say bye to marple bye marple Marple, it's bedtime. <laughs> and that's us with the last episode for Series 1 of the Finding Fire podcast. I wish you the best of luck on your journey towards whatever goals you've set for this year. Some of you listeners may be aware of a documentary series called Star Trek. It tells us that within just a few generations, we will have created a civilization where everyone's basic needs are so completely met by society that there is no poverty, no hunger, and even no need for money. Until then, for those who are able, bold and lucky, there is financial independence. Join us again when we next go finding fire. Hello, Stuart. Hello, Ian. You've answered. That is fantastic. I have answered. I like to keep you on your toes. Tell me something. So whenever I come to your house and it takes you about 16 hours to answer the door, I get that because you're putting on your trousers and you're putting on your eyeliner and all that stuff, right? Why does it always take so long for you to answer the phone? You don't need trousers on to answer the phone, mate. Well, I think you make a good point there, to be honest. Maybe I could have just kept my trousers off. <laughs> exactly. But then I would get cold legs. And if I've got cold legs, I've probably got cold feet. If I've got cold feet, I tend to sneeze a lot. <laughs> and you can't, you can't sneeze in a podcast. That's too much <laughs> editing work. <laughs> Wow. I have not spent enough of my life trouserless to be able to make those kind of um, connections, but well done. That is so obviously not true, Stuart. <laughs> right, moving swiftly on, um, 